welcome to the next edition of CCYSC Awards. My name is Akash. I teach at the School of Education at Azim Premji University. I'm a historian of education and today I'll be talking to Dr. Katrina Ellis. Hello, my name is um, Katrina Ellis. I teach at the University of Strathclyde in the Centre for the Social History of Health and Healthcare and I'm a historian of childhood in South India. Thanks, Katrina. So to start off, let's uh, hear a bit about your work so far, your doctoral research, what you're working on now, and how your interests have evolved. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share my research. In broad terms, I work on the history of children and childhood in the 1920s and the 1930s in the Madras presidency. And I'm interested in the emergence of a universal modern idea of childhood in that era. Within this um, work, I'm interested in three aspects, the construction and uses of childhood as a conceptual category. So I look at the symbolic value of the term childhood for differing elites, and consider who is contributing to this discourse. And I'm interested in the particular ways in which the child emerged in late colonial India as an object to be reformed and as a human becoming, as a future citizen of an independent nation. I then look at the ways in which these new ideas of the child informed intervention in the lives of children, particularly in the spheres of education, health policy and juvenile justice, and what this reveals about what the idea of the child really meant. And really what I show here is that while the child is discussed as universal, so the child, um, which child is be, the child should be in school, in practice, a child is urban, is high caste, is male, is upper class. It's not universal at all. I then try to balance this with an awareness of children as historical agents. And in my thesis, I tried to glimpse, catch a glimpse of how children themselves both experienced childhood and contributed to this idea of what it meant to be a child. Right, that's great. Um, you talk in terms of a normative discourse coming into being over time. Uh, could you elaborate a bit on that? So a bit of background to this in very, very basic terms. And there's two strands which are important in my thinking here. The first is the emergence of a normative discourse of childhood today, a discourse which we see most clearly in the 1989 um, United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, which sees a modern child as vulnerable, as sexually innocent, as playful, as economically worthless, though emotionally priceless. And that's the words of Viviana Zilazar. And this continues to inform policy in India, even as it is widely recognized that this idea of what it is to be a child emerged from the particular historical circumstances of the West to be regarded as a global norm. The second strand is that my work is predicated on the understanding that childhood is demonstrably not a self-evident category. It is socially constructed and therefore varies according to time and space. So I very much agree that there are multiple childhoods constructed by and for children. And so the question for me was when and how do these ideas about modern childhoods become normative, become widely accepted by the post-colonial or even colonial elite and why and how does this impact not only policy discourse, but also cultural representations of childhood, economic change, state intervention, and the emergence of the Indian child sentimentalized as a particular target 
of global humanitarian and feminist concern. And my thesis is that, is that this is not a colonial idea. And that while you have some support for these ideas, particularly as Karen Balgarda has shown among the missionary community, that these ideas really gain force in the South Indian context in at least the interwar period. So this normative discourse is agreed from around the 1920s. Right. Um, why this period? Can you tell us a bit more about how you trace the roots of uh, this process in the late colonial period? So two um, key things really happen in the 1920s and 30s. And there's always been extensive exchange of ideas and information between different groups of Indians and others at an international level. But, but you see the real development of transnational networks of exchange around child saving in the 1920s and 30s, partly stimulated by the Declaration of the Rights of the Child issued by the League of Nations in 1924 and the flurry of activity surrounding this, so particularly around trafficking and protection of women and children. But you also see Indian engagement with the New Education Network and other groups of progressive pedagogues. So Montessori, for example, even comes to Madras in the late 30s. But also in terms of juvenile justice, and there's extensive personal links between South Africa, Australia, and Madras um, in exchanging good practice for the juvenile courts. So this time of exchange is very important. But even more important is a 1919 Government of India Act, which gives limited powers to Indians. Now, I don't want to underplay the political limitations of this, the limited franchise, the disappointment. And this, this is clearly not democracy. But at the same time, what I did notice was that the departments which are devolved to Indian control are the ones which most impact children. Um, and that this control is both political and administrative. And so my analysis really looks at, the, at Indians self-consciously acting as the state. Um, and the complexities of exchanges between provincial and central government, municipal corporations, a wide variety of social actors, urban professionals, political, religious and caste representatives, civil society organisations, as well as parents, family members and children themselves. But the, this is an Indian public sphere in which Indians are influencing pol um, policy, but really very limited um, impact from the colonial state itself. Um, and, and that's when these ideas really emerge. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, you've given us a description of your work. Uh, let me ask you a more you know, fundamental question, so to say. When I tell people that I work on the history of education, I'm often asked how I came to work on it. And I'd like to put that to you as well. Why childhood? Okay, so that's for me, that's a long and complicated story. And in my undergraduate work, I specialised in the history of South Asia and I was particularly influenced by, um, in historiographical terms, by the subaltern studies school led, of course, by Ranajit Guha. And this, I, particularly this idea of the small voices of history, recovering the agency of small people. And of course, there's a few people who are smaller than children. And, and that got me thinking. Um, uh, and while there are so many variations between children's experiences, I'd still suggest that as a group, children remain subordinated to forms of differing adult power and subject to changing adult discourses. So we can talk, as, as Satadra Sen does, about the subaltern status of all children. Now, I've moved on as a historian from this idea of recovering voice, and we can talk about that later. 
But this central concept that children are legitimate historical actors, I think remains important and politically significant, not just because they were there in the past, but the gesture of listening, um, the suggestion that they contribute through their speaking, through their actions to shape historical events, to shape the production of knowledge, to the reformulation and the formulation of social hierarchies, um, is, is really significant that they are, are historical actors, often not in the spectacular, but often in the mundane and the everyday. Now, for me, there's key moments, for example, reading Satadri Sen's Colonial Childhoods, but the world outside academia is also important. And there's two factors here. First, I used to do a lot of work on children's rights with Amnesty International, the human rights organisation. But secondly, my eldest daughter was born when I was 22. And so my postgraduate work and my own children's lives were entangled in this whole process of researching, writing, thinking, parenting. And that's been quite influential too. Now, you've been working on the 19th century, Akash. Tell us about your work, your research um, conclusions, your own disciplinary location. Yeah, before that, quite a story you've told us about uh, how you came to work on a childhood. <laughs> um, as far as I'm concerned, yes, I see myself as a historian of education primarily. I began with a general interest in the history of education, and uh, I was more interested in the post-colonial history of the university. But as I delved deeper into the issue, I was quite um, excited by the story of the school. And I found those records quite fascinating and examined to a much lesser extent than the history of universities. So you still had good institutional histories of Banaras in the university, Aligarh Muslim University, um, and the three universities which began in 1857. But fewer studies on school education, um, Barring, say, the work of Krishna Kumar, uh, which would you know, feature in a standard reading list on the history of education. But what made me take a final decision to look at the 19th century history of school education was that I thought it was going to help me construct a different genealogy of uh, modern education in India. That's the sense I got after looking at the archives uh, for a while. Uh, the history of education itself, or rather say, the historiography of Indian education appeared rather top heavy with uh, higher education and universities assuming a, an almost disproportionately large space in, space in them. The foundation of Hindu College, Banaras Sanskrit College, and later the three universities of the presidencies, there were key dates in the history of education, and they still are. But research on school education was telling me a different story. Um, a phase of massive and very significant activity in education, even preceding the Woods Dispatch of 1854, and the dispatch itself and the process it set in motion appeared quite interesting. And that's how I got uh, going on my topic. That's so interesting. And this focus on primary education, it just seems to have been lost. And this focus on the university, I think is, is really important to mention. You work particularly on the 19th century. Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about that and about the sources and methods that you use. Yeah. Um, you know, initially I started off with uh, an interest in the history of pedagogy, specifically the teaching learning process. But as I've been telling you over the last few days in course of our conversations that um, it seems a difficult story to track. 
um, in the sense the teaching learning process itself rather ephemeral and intangible, not quite leaving a trace. You have the teacher training manuals, but those are more like you know normative texts. So that interest has remained, but I think over time I got down to working specifically on the relationship between governance and education. Looking at how uh, school education came to be operationalized, what its uh, various tiers were, what types of schools came about, how did teacher training happen, how was inspection organized, how did textbooks uh, come to be used? How did the state come to regulate textbooks? Which interestingly happens quite late in the day. 1876, you have the first uh, textbook committee set up by the government to actually regulate uh, what had by then emerged as a pretty vibrant market of uh, textbooks. So themes like this um, I, have, I have looked at. Uh, at present, I think my interest remains around this question of relationship between governance and education. And there has been some very useful work uh, by someone like Ian Hunter, who has uh, tried to map this question conceptually, drawing upon uh, Foucault's work and other influences as well. So broadly, that's where it is uh, situated for now. I'm still exploring multiple themes uh, within this uh, broad thematic of the relationship between governance and education. That's fascinating. And I'm just thinking, so we're talking now about history of childhood. When did, how and when did you start taking an interest in childhood? Yeah. Uh, my interest in childhood is rather recent, I would say, and it's a growing interest. Um, emerging largely from a sense that as historians of education, one is often looking at the child insofar as he or she is a student. Now, that's not enough to understand education in the 19th century because at that time, only a very small portion of the child population were students in a formal sense. And much of the conversations in education at the time were about recasting the child as the student. Uh, so I felt need to ground the study of education in the history of childhood. That's what has got me interested. Um, I'd like your views on the same as a historian of childhood. How do you look at history of education? Yeah, it's interesting. So I approach the history of education from the opposite direction. I'm, I'm interested in the history of childhood and education is one way of looking at where the child is. The child is in school and that's the most normative form of where a child, space that a child should be in. Um, I, and I probably want to move in, in historical terms beyond those boundaries beyond the idea of just education, to see what the parallels are between what's being said about the child in educational terms to juvenile justice terms as well, and, and, and to, to break some of those disciplinary boundaries. Yeah, that's great. Um, I read your work on using autobiographies to talk about childhood. So I have a methodological question here. You seem to use the autobiographies as records of times that they refer to. How does this speak to, say, a set of literature and autobiographies that suggest that autobiographies be read as cultural texts speaking to a specific audience as instruments of self-fashioning rather than an archive of the period that they talk about? So this is such an interesting question and so many people have written about it and there's so much to in, in unpick, really. Um, my own research be, is based on the memoirs of about 55 individuals, selected because the authors are born between 1910 and 1940, they live in South India, they, that's where they had their childhood. And of course there are lots of problems with this source material, even at 
the most basic level, these are unrepresentative texts because the writers are necessarily more highly educated than their peers. And someone like um, APJ Abdul Kalam's um, former presidents, his autobiography would be a good example of this. Of course, autobiographies are also written by adults. And so the ways that memories are organized, chosen, represented, is often more reflective of contemporary political and social concerns of the authors. This is not children's voices. And I think that's partly what you allude to in your question. This is often the case in the history of education. So I've got a recent article out in a new volume by Dan Daniel Mao and Marcelo Caruso, and that looks at the ways in which the writers use their personal memories of colonial education to influence the decolonization of education after independence. So this is a very political project. Um, and we can see, for example, in Satanatan's autobiography, Plain Speaking, a Sudras story, gives extensive details of his experience of discrimination within school. And then this needs to be read very directly um, in the context of his campaign for reservation, his work as the chairman of the 1969 Tamil Nadu Backward Classes Commission. But I think to dismiss autobiography as merely the voice of adults is too simplistic. I think we also, that's one aspect. Another aspect is we also need to be careful not to assume that all autobiographical writing is this search for the self, is this self-reflective mode, because I think that's very much associated with Western um, life writing, but also Bengali life writing. Um, and I'm not sure that this is only form that we see in the Indian context. So I think that South Indian, particularly Tamil life writing, is much more a form of excising the self, of writing a history of social change in which the individual life is meant to represent the community. Um, and so this is much, should be seen much more as a narrative of progress, as, as an attempt to contrast the past with the present. So you think of writers like A.R. Venkata Chalapati argues that Tamil autobiographies are explicitly structured around this binary of difference between these days and those days to demonstrate social transformation. So the purpose of writing is different from some of this more self-reflective um, work as well. And of course, I only look at the childhood aspects of the autobiography. Uh, and, then, and a different um, aspect as well is, um, if we think about Dalit life writings, and, and you see them as a means of claiming both public voice and self-respect, of underlying the common humanity of the Dalit community, essentially claiming that that community has a history. And this is particularly significant because although these voices are deeply mediated through time and later personal experience, they're telling a story not found in other sources. And so life writing is another opportunity that gives an insight into groups of the histories of groups which are underrepresentative or even silenced in the traditional archive and are often explicitly used by these communities as a genre of resistance. And so despite the many, many problems with autobiographies and they need to be read so carefully, I think the memories of childhood found within in them are important because they put down a marker that say children are in the classroom, that they are not just acted upon, but they also contribute to this production of knowledge. They can test the hierarchies of the classroom, they reformulate them, they accept them, 
they adapt different forms of identity, of power, of hierarchy. So, I mean, one of my favourite examples is if you read the public instruction reports on teacher training, you hear how modern teachers instil discipline through and often manliness through physical activity and team sports. Whereas if you read someone like Srinivasan's autobiography, he talks about the teacher trying to do all these things and spending more time repairing the punctures to the football or stopping the game so the traffic can go past than actually putting into practice what, what he had been taught. And that, that's, that's interesting. That's a perspective we wouldn't have got from anywhere else. Um, so autobiographies have real limitations as a source material. But I'd be interested in how you move beyond policy pronouncements to look at educational experience. What is the education like for the child? Or do you think that's the wrong question? Do you think as historians we fetishise that temporary concerns about children's rights to participate and that this actually privileges particular voices or simply just claims more from the archive than we're able to substantiate with evidence? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you move beyond policy pronouncements? Well, the vernacular archive is a rich resource that one can tap into. Pedagogic journals, as well as journals by different caste groups and women's journals, records from individual schools, which are sparse for the 19th century, but they're there. Vernacular literature, missionary archives. Um, so, you know, one can uh, move beyond policy pronouncements, so to say. Uh, to look at different kinds of archives. But the question of accessing experience, I think, is a tough one. All these sources, they're indexed by power in their own way, and they all reframe the experiences of you know, being students. So they all carry a rich record of student experiences, but comes down to you know, how we read them. I'm not sure if I'm trying to recover those experiences in my research as such, at least that's not the focal point. The focus, um, you know, as I was trying to explain, as part of um, a study on the relationship between governance and education. Right now, I'm trying to understand how different people, different groups acted within this milieu created by the colonial educational reforms, sometimes in collusion with the state, sometimes in opposition, sometimes adapting to the milieu and sometimes subverting it. And I'm trying to show how these activities were very crucial to the shaping of colonial education, its texture. Uh, which I think is a little different from trying to capture some you know, essential experience of uh, being children in uh, those schools, I suppose. Uh, I would not say that we fetishize voice and agency and how do we write histories without paying attention to these anyway. But yes, I think we sometimes do demand more from the archives than uh, what they can tell us. And if one is not careful, this can lead to us privileging certain voices uh, in ways that uh, can be problematic. One big challenge that I faced is about accessing voice and question in the space of the classroom. Barring teacher training manuals, as you know, I was explaining, which are normative texts, rather than um, you know, traces of actual classroom transaction, what other documents from within the educational records can be useful for tracing a history of the teaching learning process? That's, a, that's been a challenge for me. Oh, uh, what do you think about that? So, um, so from my perspective and my research, I think the pedagogical journals have been very important in looking at that teaching learning process, particularly in the 1920s when there's a much more detailed engagement with new education and 
with how we see the child as, as a learner. And these are written by pedagogues, but also by psychologists. I think, I think that's, that's been very interesting. But I think that I've also used um, records from individual schools. Now, this has got to be recorded by the teacher and by the, by the voices of authority, but it's still, and, and often in terms of fundraising as well. So I think particularly the Children's Garden School in Madras, which I look at, often their pronouncements are as much about encouraging local civil society to donate money to them as it is to tell us about the teaching learning process. But there are still the occasional photograph. We see that in some of the teacher training colleges and they give a small indication of how children are learning. But I think very fragmentary and very difficult. Um, so perhaps um, you can speak up. Will we go on to the next question, or yeah, let's do that. There's four minutes. Um, so perhaps you could speak a little about the impact of contemporary work on education, on the study of education in the past, both the potentials and the pitfalls. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know, that's always going to happen. The contemporary frames the historical in important ways. Potential, of course, of opening new questions. I really enjoyed reading Pauline Lipman's work on the restructuring of the city space of Chicago and the role of universities functioning as de facto corporations in it and of the ways in which this has affected black neighborhood schools. I think that raised important historical questions about the relationship between the education and the urban a theme virtually unresearched in uh, Indian history, I think. Nandini Manjrekar has been doing some great work on this in the context of Baroda. Um, and questions such as these encourages us to look at uh, deeper histories of segregation also within education in South Asia, which um, it, its character may be very different from what we see in the case of America, but uh, it's certainly worth exploring. So I'm talking about, say, histories of the public-private binary in India, which would take us back once again to colonial education. I and mean, this has been a very contemporary debate. If one were to investigate this historically, we go back to the constitution of so-called public education in the colonial period. With faults, there could be many um, dangers of projecting present concerns and themes onto the past is, can be dangerous, especially uh, if we end up overdrawing both historical parallels as well as differences. But those can also be worked around, I suppose, by paying close attention to the archives and the stories they tell and uh, not looking for stories that they do not tell. That was such an interesting um, answer. Very, I was just thinking, very often in the history of education in India, it's seen as like a narrative of progress, perhaps almost a linear progression towards modernity or what we would recognise as modern um, schooling. So, for example, this movement from the Pashalas um, in, in primary schools in Bengal um, in the middle of the 19th century. And you've been quite critical of so this, the movement from Pashalas to modern schools in, in the 19th century. You've been quite critical of this um, approach. Maybe you could give us more detail about what you find when you've engaged with the evidence on the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. So in a sense, the critique of, um, sort of unilinear progress narratives is a 
pretty long tradition within critical theory, history, and social sciences. Um, and it's a fairly long story, you know, as to how the progress narrative has framed histories of education, what I felt its pitfalls are. I won't go into so much details right now, but very briefly, so at the start, I found uh, Frederick Cooper's pointers towards the necessity of uh, understanding modernity, not as a package, as he puts it, but as a process that evolved through historical context, quite useful. Um, I thought it helps us unpack the texture of the education system, which is quite diverse, complex, and, uh, and heterogeneous. Now, starting from that, the more I delved into the archives, the more I felt that uh, the association of education with uh, modernizing and modernist progress narratives renders invisible other important stories of education. For instance, you know, one often talks about modern education as a continuum, a story of you know, slow but steady expansion of mass education through the colonial and post-colonial periods. Uh, and the word public education is used in a blanket manner to talk about this ever-evolving state project of mass education as a, a story of progress. But looking at the archives of the 19th century, it seems that the, this public system which really comes into being at that time was actually a very deeply segregated one. Um, you know, how does one build upon that? Uh, so what should, say, the overarching story of education be? Should we say it's progress or should we say it's a story of evolving forms of social segregation through shifting historical contexts with interregnums in between? And that's a you know, provocative question, I suppose, but useful to ask as, I'm not sure if you can you know, ask them effectively uh, this and uh, other important questions as well, unless you really go beyond um, the progress narrative. That's in very brief and um, for now, that's what I can say. Hopefully as uh, I write more, um, you'll read it and you'll get to comment uh, on it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the book coming out. Oh, long way off. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to reading more of your work as well, your book also. And uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And hope to have more of these conversations. Thank you, Akash. And thank you to, to the Critical Childhoods Collective for, for stimulating this conversation. And um, I really enjoyed hearing about your research. And, it will be good to continue the conversations further. Thanks, Sanjana, and thanks, CCYUC, Divya, Anandini, all of you. Thank you. Thank you.